that produces a crop equal to those grains, it is fine and receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. All right, we will we'll go through it again, verse by verse, uh, and so you will have you can stop me at any point if you. But uh, we'll go through it verse by verse, and but let me introduce a little bit. Uh, he's we've just done the section where he said let's move beyond the hard things, uh, let's or rather move beyond the rudiments or the elementary things, uh, and what I've argued. And I think it's a fairly well accepted idea is that the hard te- teaching is the high priesthood of Christ. That is, that he's, he's just stopped talking about that Christ is the mediator, and he's going to pick that up again uh, at the end of chapter 6. And so it's the priesthood of Melchizedek. I think what he's describing with Melchizedek, in fact, is a difficult thing to get. It's the idea that creation and humanity are mediated by Christ and humanity and creation then through Christ uh, are mediated, uh, that divinity is mediated to them. So it's a hard teaching and it's the fullness of the gospel. We'll come back to it. Meanwhile, he's, he's describing the milk. He's described solid food and milk, or referred to that, and I think he, here he runs down what the elementary teachings might be. And there are six things he says, and I think we can line up the six things uh, into pairs, uh, into three pairs. Um, first of all, he, the first two pairs that are kind of the heading of the six is repentance from dead works and faith in God. Uh, And these uh, works from which he's going to talk about, you know, dead works, he's going to later in chapter 9 talk about works from which the conscience uh, needs to be cleansed. These are works that he's going to describe. They issue in death because they are evil. In the Didache, uh, they actually lay this out. They says, well, he's referring to murders, adulteries, lusts, fornications, thefts, idolatries, magic, art, sorceries. You get the idea. Um, the things that lead to death. Paul will refer to a similar idea in chapter 6 of Romans when he's describing baptism. And he describes baptism then as uh, partly a... a uh, it's a death to these things or this orientation to death. So I think the two things go together that when you have faith in God and we need to define faith to under, in a correct sense to under, understand how faith stands over and against the dead works. And the, the thing I have been arguing uh, in Hebrews and I think it's accepted in the rest of Scripture is that faith for the writer of Hebrews particularly refers to resurrection faith. Uh, And this is certainly Paul's picture of faith in Romans chapter 4. And sometimes it's been argued that the writer of Hebrews does not focus on resurrection. And I've been making the case, well, actually, the idea of resurrection is at the crux of what he's saying. And even here... Repentance from 
you know, dead works, well, what would be the opposite of that? It would be a, a faith that is a resurrection faith. That is, resurrection is opposed to death. Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so we see there, too, the contrast between dead works, living God, and resurrection faith, dead works. Uh, the other items that follow here, I think, represent... Many people notice that these may refer to something in having to do with Judaism. Uh, you know, initiation rites, uh, it's literally the plural of baptisms, laying on of hands, and so these uh, may be the correlate of repentance, while belief about last things, you know, resurrection, and when he's talking about resurrection... Uh, this is, has to do with final judgment and those w would be conjoined into faith in God if we were to line them up in when a list. When you were talking about Judaism were you saying you agree with it? That it, it may be so many say it. That, that it may be that these people are Jews former Jews who have become Christians and so cultures. I mean, you know, in the first century, aren't they? Well, that, and that's the issue. Who's who's the book of Hebrews? I mean, Hebrews. It seems to be have been written to Jews, and so the the idea is that they've the writer is not, uh, and neither are the readers. It's not that they are in some way saying that Judaism is a completely dead letter, but they've passed on beyond Judaism. And right. so the danger That's may be... That's an elementary thing you're saying? That may be the elementary thing, oh. and the danger may be that they'll fall back into that. Well, that was, a that was a danger. Paul talked about the Galatians that did that. Same thing. Yeah. And and, uh, and he's, the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about this in a very strong way, and Paul does too. If you notice in Galatians, he equates going back to the works of the law. The Galatians, we don't think, were Jews, but there are Judaizers who are apparently there in Galatia, and he's equating going back to the law to their former idolatrous religion. And the writer here in this chapter, this section we're about to read, is also going to say some very hard things about the necessity to, to press on, to move on. Uh, and he uses the word to press on from the basic teachings, and of course he's using the language here of perfection. And what does perfection mean? Frank? Maturity. I think that's it, that it's probably maturity, uh, the idea of uh, reaching a goal. He's going to, in verse 7, he says, he talks about this perfection in terms of the growth of a crop, a fruitful crop. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it also is tilled, receives a blessing from God. It's very similar to Christ's picture of the vine and the branches. A, a, a branch that produces fruit uh, is one that abides in the vine. Here the picture is that the moving on to maturity is to produce fruit to be, uh, you know, vegetation in this, in this instance. 
And the picture then toward the better things that belong to salvation. And the better things he's characterized in three ways that, that it's characterized with the full hope, faith, and patience. And that he says that it imitates the saints in verses 11 and 12. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Um, and then he gives us concrete examples. You know, this is, a, he, you all are familiar with chapter 11 of people who demonstrate this maturity. Can we use the word, maybe perfection is not the word, but the goal. And here, there, he'll link it to fulfilling the promise given to Abraham. That is the goal, that is the perfection, the telos, the, the full maturity. Uh, and he, in verse 19, he's going to say, it's sure and steadfast. And he uses nautical language here that's very interesting. It is like an anchor securing us within the Holy of Holies. So uh, the place of the Holy of Holies, obviously the very presence of God. Maybe he's referring to the unchangeable nature of God. He refers to that, that you know, God is sworn to Abraham by two unchanging things. And this is the place that Jesus exercises his priesthood. What I, and, and he uses this language, he'll use it in chapter uh, 7, his priesthood is dependent upon Jesus' indestructible life. I think this is, he's back in chapter 7 talking about the hard thing. The hard thing, I think, is the bodily resurrection and the bodily ascension of Christ. And that he's, he's also he's nudging them, don't, don't fall away. Don't, it's against apostasy. And that means it's possible. So we all need to take heed. It's scary stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he says, don't miss this thing. Don't fail to enter in. Don't. And and we'll have to, we'll, when we read it, I suppose we should discuss it. I, I honestly don't. I, Stuart's here, and he can tell us the true meaning of that verse. But it, <laughs> it's a hard verse, you know. What does he mean? Uh, and so when we... Uh, uh, of uh, six? Yeah, that he says that, you know, do not fail to, well, is it, what is the verse there, Jake, that seems to say that... Uh, falling away, it is impossible to renew them again to repent. Yes, yes. I would simplify it for a lot for me is uh, finding out that the word since is probably better translated while. Uh, while they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put into open shape. In other words, while somebody is still in the throes of their sin, and the, the particular sin here being apostasy, in, in their rejection of Christ. Because if, if you take this, the, the view that this is written to Hebrew Christians that are being persecuted for their faith by Jews, then if they just give up Jesus, they say, I got the same God, got the same family, go to the same place to worship, all this. I just give up the name of Jesus. All this persecution will stop. Yeah. yeah. And, and 
if if they but the thing is if they give up Jesus they give up everything I like but that man, I like that's, that that's yeah. the point of what yeah. Hebrews is about if you give up Jesus it's all loss and, and so while they are in this state of mind while they are in this state of apostasy there's nothing we can do and they have it, it's the prodigal son they have to come to themselves mm-hmm. and say what what am I doing you know and then they have to turn and go back to the father themselves amen and and so while they're in that state <clears throat> to you to stick with the word since makes it sound like if you fall away you can never come back but what's the point of the prodigal son then right I like that. I like that. That it's a, it's a state of being that it's not saying that there is no repentance. It's saying that while you're unrepentant. Yes. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It goes along with Second Peter two. Which we're going to. I'm going to reference Second Peter because in both instances, and I think it refers here, that the writer of Hebrews and Second Peter are using the language of participation of uh, you know the in the Eastern Church they're going to call this theosis uh, the glory you know that to which man is called it is that he should grow more godlike now that sounds pretty heavy but then you look at second Peter and it says for these by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent prop- promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The writer of Hebrews is using very similar language. Uh, Where are you at now? That was Second Peter oh, okay. uh, 1, 3 to 4. He's using a word there uh, that is there in, in the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is going to use language we would pr- translate partners, participants, partakers, Say that word there, Frank. Is it metokoi? Uh, those are and English letters, so I'm going to go with that. Okay, in a heavenly <laughs> calling. All right. So we might translate metokoi as partners of Christ. Uh, in six four, the hearers are not are told not to turn away from being partners, participants. You know, is the idea. So same language as Second Peter. And uh, that we're part- partners in the Holy Spirit, and so the the idea of participants, uh, I think, is what the Eastern Church means by theosis, by the word deification. Uh, that is not that we become gods, but that we become co-participants in the Trinity. I think that's very orthodox language that both Peter. And Hebrews uses. Actually, the word in Hebrews, or rather in Peter, though, is koinonia. Uh, But I think koinonia has the same idea as participation, partners. So our calling is to be partakers, participants. And the way that you do this, uh, the way that you, the promise is fulfilled, we make every effort uh, 
the the word here is that he's going to use this idea of you know of uh, of uh, diligence. Show the same diligence in accomplishing the end for which you hope. Uh, and so effort, diligence in the koinonia, in the participation. Uh, and this, in both instances, is connected to goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, mutual affection, love. Uh, both the writer of Hebrews and Second uh, Peter will use all of that language except writer in Hebrews there's no goodness or self-control but a very similar list uh, but in the end at the end of Hebrews he says let us show mutual love let mutual love continue uh, the the term endurance is a, I mean this is uh, who just said this that endurance is the central admonition maybe of, of the book of Hebrews but certainly in chapter 12 so endurance or perseverance entails that those who fail in it cannot be restored again to repentance. So I, 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 uh, I like what uh, Stuart has said, that as long as we're failing in it, that in some way we're missing out on a present tense salvation. Um, the way that Normal Russell describes theosis Theosis is our restoration as persons to integrity and wholeness by participation in Christ through the Holy Spirit in a process which is initiated in this world through our life of ecclesial communion. I think the fellowship, what we are doing here now, I think the koinonia is the place that the participation in Christ kicks in. Uh, our moral striving finds fulfillment in the communion, in union with the Father. Uh, and so it is to live as a faithful member of the church. In an Eastern Orthodox, you'd say, well, attending to the liturgy, but I think that, well, actually attending to the communion. We just did a kind of fellowship supper. We commune together. Uh, I think that Christ was there. I don't know that there's a time when Christ is any more present than in the participation, the koinonia that we experience as a group. The, there's a, a kind of interesting differentiation in the East and the West. I thought I'd just point at this a little bit. That in the East, when you talk about union with God, they do not like the Western focus on God uh, as an object of knowledge. It's not knowledge of God, but it's an experience of God, a mystical experience that surpasses our understanding, surpasses our capability to describe it. I don't know that we need to go into detail as to why they claim that difference, other than to acknowledge, I think in this, the Eastern Church has it right. That... What we experience in the koinonia, in the fellowship, is in excess of what we can grasp in some philosophical or intellectual or academic sense. And both groups, of course, are guilty of, of, uh, 
a, a kind of reduction to a philosophical understanding. The, the particular doctrine here, you don't need to know about it or what it, but the idea that the East did not buy into the doctrine of filioque, and their idea is that the filioque then is that, that that's precisely where the philosophical understanding enters in. I was just going to say, uh, <clears throat> as far as it you know, being like a mystical experience, and my question, just this is my ignorance of the Eastern Orthodoxy, but I know that in Western Orthodoxy, uh, the, the mystical experience of God tend to be um, much more of an otherworldly kind of uh, in your head experience. You know, we've talked a lot about that. I'm just kind of curious in the in the Eastern Orthodox, is that the case when, with their understanding of mystical union with God, or is there a difference? Are they more practical? Is what I'm asking. I think that it would you would find the same problem. In other words, the Eastern mysticism, you will find what we might consider a legitimate practice and illegitimate practice. I don't think you can divide this up by East and West. Uh, that. I think there is a legitimate mysticism, right? That we have to point to the fact that God is, that our union with Christ is a mystical union. Uh, and But the point I'm taking away is, yeah, and the, point, the place that we experience that is in the koinonia, is in the fellowship. So the Hebrew is the only cause and source for maturity is Christ. And Christ receives it, and we've already gone through 5, 8 to 10, because he suffered, and he offers it to others through his eternal priesthood. This is what you get in the Wesleyan and you know some of the holiness traditions, uh, the idea of coming to a fullness of maturity. I think there's a kind of misunderstanding there that, you know, in the Nazarene church, you actually can stand up and say, well, now I've been made perfect. I don't think that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about because they're picturing perfection as a sort of static state. But uh, Wesley himself referred to entering the promised rest in Hebrews. In Wesley's language, he createth them anew in Christ Jesus. He cometh into them with his Son and blessed Spirit and fixing his abode in their souls, bringeth them into rest, which remaineth for the people of God. That if you enter into the Sabbath rest, that is then to, in some way, uh, be entering into maturity. And that is possible, as Wesley goes on to say, only through uh, the intercession of Christ. So, Hebrews offers an either, either you do this thing, either you continue growing, either you have continued zeal, or you're counted apostate. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the know, harsh sometimes, thing. Sometimes I find myself moving in and out of Hebrews 6. You know, I grow, and then I don't grow, and then I have to start over again. And I think what Stuart... It shouldn't be that way, but that's yeah. the way it's been. And it's not like when we're not growing that there is no repentance available to us. That is, I, that I don't think what he's saying is that uh, he's just saying that uh, there is fertile land and there's barren land 
there, there are times when we we have hope. And I mean, if you just took Hebrews, I, maybe Stuart would disagree with me, and I, I hope he does. If you just took this passage in isolation, you could come away with the idea that there is no hope of redemption. But I agree, I don't think that's what he's saying. Uh, Maybe part of the issue, like looking at it too, is uh, we tend to have kind of these quantum states. You know, you're either immediately immediately apostate or immediately not. And while there's certainly circumstances that could be the case, generally it's more that there's a direction. That you are withering, not immediately withered necessarily. Again, there are exceptions, or growing. Um, so it's not like, you know, every five or ten minutes or every day or every week we're switching back and forth between apostasy and, and orthodoxy. It's that we begin these life practices that push us toward one direction or the other. It's a, it's a dynamic process. Yeah. I want to agree with you. I want to agree. I do agree with you. But let me give some... I, I, I used to uh, illustrate it as running up a sand hill. I mean, you can, you can run up a sand hill. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you stop your feet, you're going to start going backwards. Yeah. You've got to keep putting forth effort. You have, you have to keep going. If up the sand, yeah. There, there is, there is no staying the same. No, no. Let me offer a. While I'm agreeing with you, the writer says that Esau, having sold his birthright, could not find repentance, even though he sought it with tears. Chapter twelve, verse seventeen. Esau, Esau sought forgiveness, but none was offered. I think that the writer of Hebrews, while I'm agreeing with this, he is posing the possibility of apostasy. Oh, yeah. You can crucify Christ again. You can be brought to the point. But it, it was also, man, and it goes along with this passage, because I look at this in terms of, of producers and consumers. And... The consumers are the self-serving that do things for themselves that uh, you crucify him again to yourself. Uh, it's a very selfish endeavor. To give up Christ to get persecution to stop is a very selfish thing. As he alludes later, he said he did it for you. You, know, you haven't yet begun to shed blood in, in your avoidance of sin. And, and those kinds of things... It, there, there, there's a faith, a real faith that that does so for the sake of others, and that's the producer. The producer, you know, brings forth vegetation, vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled. It's it's producing because not because I'm supposed to, but because it's good for you. And and so, with Esau. Why was he shedding tears? It was a very selfish shedding of tears. Good point, yeah. I gave this up for a bowl of soup. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have taken that bowl of soup because I would have gotten more with that. Yeah. 
And, and so, you know, they're, they're, what he's offering here is you have the choice to produce or you, you have the choice to consume. That's, that's good. That's the immaturity versus the maturity. You know, that, that's, and that's, that's what was happening at the end of chapter 5. Is immaturity versus maturity. When you look at Esau's repentance, I mean, he had the type of repentance that led him to want to kill his brother. So there's also like a difference inside of there. Like, yeah, I think you really hit it. He was selfish. Yeah, the 2 uh, <laughs> Corinthians, you know, the, the repentance that leads to life and the repentance that leads to death. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the difference between Peter and Judas, you know, yeah. those, those kinds of things. It, it's just a matter of why. Why am I repenting? You know, why, why is there a, a transformation in me? They, they were sorry. It's kind of like the kind of thought, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry I got caught. Like the person that let somebody step in front of them. I read an article about this that actually happened. Somebody let somebody step in front of them at the grocery store. They were both going to buy lottery tickets. And the person that let the other one step in front of them, the person that was let by, won the lottery. <laughs> and the guy probably. And the guy that let him go ahead was like, That's if hard. I would have known, <laughs> I wouldn't have let him go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so much for a kind of... <laughs> there, and I think that, that, we're, that reading Hebrews, we're to be encouraged, but there's a little bit of fear, of fear in the encouragement that press on to the maturity, but if you should happen not to, uh, that it does have dire consequences. The way in the early church they didn't quite know what to do with Hebrews 6.4, especially after the various you know, persecutions. But the, the conclusion they came to is that repentance is always a possibility, but no one should be rebaptized. Uh, what cannot be restored is the benefits of baptism by baptizing again. I don't know that that's there in the Hebrews text, but that's that was what they're bringing out of it. What can be claimed are the benefits of one one's baptism, you've already been baptized, by a true repentance. And so, uh, I don't think it's, and, and this is the majority opinion, it's probably not the original intention, nor is it probably the original intention that, that there is... You know a, that these people have reached some point they can't repent of. Um, but if you, and as we should always do, we should read any particular passage in light of the rest of it. And certainly, Paul uh, allows for them, you know, uh, uh, being brought back, even with the man who is committing incest. Uh, Cast him out, he says. But once you cast him out, yes, but now he's repented, bring him back in. Uh, so, the message of Hebrews could never be enlisted 
to support that any more than Paul's epistles do. That is, it fits that. So the, the harshness of 6.4 is perhaps mitigated immediately by 9 to 12, which says that, that uh, need not to be sluggish, but to press on to inherit the promises through faith and patience. Let's read uh, chapter 6, 1 to 8, and get fuller commentary. Uh, David, you want to read there the verse? Verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. So, uh, the, the idea here, does somebody have a different word than maturity? Does somebody have perfection? Yeah, I have perfection. Read yours, Maisie. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith for God. My understanding is that we never reach perfection in the sense of a static end state. I, you know, Paul in Corinthians says that even in heaven, that it will be from glory to glory. That it will continue to be a dynamic process. But I'm assuming that that is a description of what the writer is describing as maturity. So when we say the problem with the word perfection is the kind of the Nazarene thing. They say, oh, I've got it now. And that I'll sin no more. Well, I can't be Nazarene anymore. <laughs> anymore. Uh, <laughs> My sister had talked to a person who had claimed the second work of grace, which is what that's alluding to. That, and uh, he said, I, I, don't sin, I don't sin anymore. And she said, well, then how long have you had this problem with lying? Yeah. How long have you had this problem with lying? John says that anybody says they do not sin, they're a liar. So it, it, I just I think it's a misunderstanding of what the writer is describing, both in the case of the Christian and I think also in the person of Christ. How did Christ reach maturity? We're talking about a process of his passing through humanity, all of the stages of humanity. And so, too, we pass through. It is a dynamic process, even in the, the great high priest who, you know, whom we're following in this. All right. The elementary teachings we've already talked about. Does anybody want to jump in there? Right. Hebrews Hebrew says that, that Jesus became perfect through his sufferings, uh, through learning obedience. Although he was a son. And uh, so, you know, it would be the same for us. We're going to suffer. Which probably that's not the way most of us want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who wants to suffer? Yeah. <laughs> and that seems to be the gift of the Holy Spirit is given in the midst of facing death and suffering. And uh, the that being brought 
to maturity then as a process of discipline. And I think that's what he's describing, that you can experience suffering as a discipline to growth. Frank, were you going to say something else there? Or is that just heavy breathing? I need to be more careful with how I move my hands. Well, I did have a thought a while ago. I did. And, and uh, what, what that was is uh, nothing profound, but just for me, I've always found Hebrews to be one of the hardest books to read correctly. Like it's the easiest to misread uh, to some very bad doctrine. I think that's right. I think that's right. It's a blessing. I think it, the reason it's easy to misread is that we all have the tendencies that both John and Hebrews are writing against. The, the way that Jesus is perfected is in his humanity. I think our tendency is toward disincarnation and being dehumanized. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that it's the fullness of our humanity that achieves our maturity. I've got a question. How do you think that we become dehumanized? The idea there is that there is a Gnostic tendency. And what that's what I meant by that our tendency is to imagine that uh, when we shuffle off this mortal coil, when we put off the flesh, I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, that it's not that, you know, how are you saved? You're not saved apart from the body. You're saved through resurrection. And that's the way he's just began chapter 6. Let's not deal with elementary teachings about resurrection. How are you saved? It's not like the Gnostics. They say, well, you're saved by being a spirit and springing up to the sky and heaven. The way the writer describes it here is uh, consistent with the New Testament, that salvation is an embodied salvation. Oh, yeah. Shall we go on to verse 2, Frank? Oh, did you just read? No. Oh, go. Instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And go ahead. And we will do this if God permits. So let's press on beyond these elementary teachings. The, uh, the plural, I mean, we have a precedent for baptism in baptisms, the washings. Uh, the laying on of hands was a way of ordination in the Old Testament. Uh, the resurrection of the dead, he's going to connect immediately. You know, the, the next thing is eternal judgment. So for a Jew, resurrection has the idea, you know, in in a place like Acts, that if you're raised from the dead, that implies forgiveness of sin. That's an interesting concept. We don't usually relate the two, but anyway, he's saying these these things, uh, the idea of works of repentance, works of elementary turning. Uh, we've already got that. Let's move on. You got anything there, Stuart, with the elementary teachings? Uh, I was thinking about something related uh, to that. Just uh, the uh, the idea with with uh, baptism and and the participation that you were talking about. That's the idea. 
in Romans 6 that we were participating with him and and participation uh, koinonia 1 John chapter 1 talks about participating in the koinonia and and so this, this idea of participating and you know that the whole idea the theme flows from the end of chapter 5 into this that's that's how you teach little ones is they participate with you that's how they grow to maturity is they watch you and follow you and listen to you and and, and all those those things wrapped together that's that's how you teach an elementary subject to an elementary child is you have them participate in it with you a, a, a related thought but I'm building on your thought. I don't think you can understand any of this. I don't think you can understand uh, what Christianity is apart from participation. That's why it's done in yeah. corporately. So that even if you've never experienced the depth of koinonia, if you've never experienced agape love, I think it's sometimes hard to grasp what's being talked about here. Because the, the, the whole thing, and in this, this is the sense in which I'd agree with an Eastern Orthodox understanding. I don't mean to reduce it to experientialism, but there is the sense that the deposit of faith that we've received in the fellowship of the saints is, that has to be, that's the necessary part that has to be present in for any of this to make sense. In other words, you can't create this thing. It has to already be there. You can preserve it. You can participate in it. You can endure. But it already has to be given by Christ. We can't make this. You know, I have to say that there's not very many times I've experienced this. I experienced it when I went to Bible college from a life of in California. Nobody went to church or anything. Um... And I think this group here, I see it more koinonia than I've seen in a long time. I mean, decades. And so I think everybody here has ought to pat themselves on the back. But I, it's a joint. It's pat ourselves jointly, I guess. Right, right. It, I think that every week. I think, man, this, yeah. this is wonderful. And I look around the room and I think, here's people I love. Here's people that I, there's, this is a group of people that nobody I'd rather be with. Here's people that care about me, yeah. care about us. Gary, yeah. you want to do the next one before we all break down crying? <laughs> no, crying is not bad. Hebrews 6, what? It's 4, verse 4. It is, it is impossible for those who have been... I know, I just have to get this little print. It is impossible for those who have been once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the coming age, if they've... Oh, i got, I got to go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, you can't verse, stop. You can't verse, stop. If they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss 
They're crucifying the Son of God over and over again, subjecting Him to public disgrace. I think you can... If you fall away without crucifying crucifying Christ, uh, that's one thing. But if you... If you crucify him, it should fall away. And I don't know how you do that. I don't know a lot of things. Um, you can't. You can't return. Say it again, Gary. I said. If you can crucify, if you can fall away without crucifying Christ. There's one thing, but if you've you crucified, you said is once you crucify Christ, there's no coming back from that. Yeah. That's what you said. Yeah. And and in the first century, there of course they had a lot of gifts, but I think they could tell. Paul would say, "I'm not saying pray for this guy because, you know, that there's no there's no hope for him." I mean, in a paraphrase. There are those that are beyond hope. I don't think we decide that. But there are such people. John says the same thing. That In the end of 1 John, I've just been preaching through there. It, it, you know, He's been talking about these antichrists, but he, he's saying that uh, there are some that you don't even pray for. So, uh, it is... You know, and this was the controversy in the early church. There were some who literally had denied Christ under pressure of persecution, and then when the persecution ceased, then the church had to decide what to do with them. Yeah, and, and of course they they were permitted to come back in after repenting. Our friend uh, Mike Householder, he went over, he went to Poland a lot, and when the wall came down. Uh, Poland experienced a lot of freedoms and it wasn't very many years before Poland said you know we're just about ready to pray for persecution again because the, the, the church is so liberal in Poland now I don't know what it's like now but I've heard similar stories and I can't remember if it was but it was it may have been China but some guys came in with machine guns and they said okay. oh yeah Maybe you told me this story. No, I, it's, a, it's a. Is it not a true story? No, it's a. It's a and they said, okay, true. Uh, anybody that, what was it? Anybody that, uh, this is your opportunity uh, if you don't want to get shot. Uh, you know. And they were, it was very convincing. And, and so, you know, the people that were willing to give up their faith, they left, and then they put their machine guns away and said, we just wanted to clear out the people we thought would. Be weak will because we're Christians too and we've come to fellowship with <laughs> I guess a pretty harsh way to. <laughs> well, think about what they did in Japan with all the, and the persecution. You know, for them it was stepping on the Fumier. Yeah, stepping on the image of Christ. They had the image of Christ, and all you have to do just step on it. We, we went to this. Uh, I'm imitating the guy, the the, the, the the guy in silence. You know, just lift your foot up, just a few inches, move it forward. Just that's all I'm asking. You don't even have to believe what you're doing. All I'm asking you to do is put your foot on this image. 
You don't have to believe anything. And that's the way they preach Christ? That's the way they, they made people be apostate. <laughs> and so the, the, once they would do that, they, it emptied their, the meaning of their faith for many people. But I think what, can we clarify what it does mean to crucify again? Yeah, tell us that. Start running that now, force again. <laughs> I, I, I think it has to do with, with the act of apostasy. Or that as far as Christ living in me, I crucify him. Which means I put him to death in my life. That is what I gained by having a living Savior and committing my life to Him and, and, and you know living on His behalf, I crucify that. I crucify Him to me. Uh, so, he's, he's no longer my living Savior. If you do and that, live for him. if one does that, that's pretty severe. But, I, that tells me you probably weren't that's serious in the beginning, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, it, it's a very, very serious thing, obviously, but I don't think it's unrepentable because it has to be, uh, I think it's a conscious uh, effort and a conscious act Daddy, to put there at some point in time later on in that person's Daddy, life that they realize the failure of that conscious act uh, of that, you know, and, and be transformed. Like I said before, I think that's the whole point. The prodigal son was living in the father's estate, and he left it consciously and made a conscious decision to return. And I think that that's what's being talked about here. But you know, to leave what 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 the prodigal son, the similarities are quite significant because what the prodigal son was saying to the father is, "I want my inheritance," which means what about the father? He's going to treat him as dead. He's going to crucify him to himself. To me, you're dead. I want my inheritance so I can go. So I can live life my way, what I consider easy. And that's that seems to be what the Hebrew Christians were doing. Uh, or at least tempted with. Crucify Christ to yourself. Go live your life of ease. Give up the persecution. And have life your way. Well, if they did that, hopefully they would have the opportunity too to come come to themselves later in return. You know, we had a teacher at Ozark when I was going there, before I came there. And uh, I don't know what happened, but he went to Las Vegas, left the teaching, pretty much left the faith. And there's two or three teachers flew out to Las Vegas to try to bring him back. He was living with prostitutes, co-prostitutes, and they, they couldn't bring him back. And 
I think the point of that that I get out of it, it it's scary. Look to look to yourselves. You know. Just the just the specific language of crucifying Christ, and just kind of looking here what we have here. Uh, you know, having tasted the heavenly gift, the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then falling away, and here holding Christ to contempt. And I'm assuming maybe some translations say shame. I'm wondering if uh, this isn't very similar to what the Pharisees did with Christ. And if you kind of compare that to disciples who are experiencing all the miracles Jesus was doing, right? You have uh, the healings and, and the various signs that he had. Um... And the Pharisees see that and basically responding, if he keeps raising people from the dead, everybody's going to believe him. And so what do they do? They scapegoat him. And so the, the crucifixion, the execution, you know, for political reasons, various reasons. And I'm wondering if this isn't kind of, a, you know, inclusive of everything we've talked about so far, but like the greater mechanism, maybe it's not just purely individual because we're talking about, you know, um, a scapegoating mechanism, maybe, perhaps, where you have this pressure from the world. Um, and in this letter, you would perhaps a particular group of people, but this is the same type of scenario we always find ourselves in, where the world, the powers of the world, um, are very different from the powers in the way that the koinonia of the kingdom of God function. And so here, once you've tasted and experienced the kind of ministry that Jesus has and Jesus' followers have, and then go back to the powers of the world, put yourself in their arms for their kind of salvation, then that, I mean, that type of, you know, participating with the scapegoat, you know, and then, and there... That's where you know Christ is really brought to change because you've seen His kingdom and go back to the world. You know, each one of these is, is really deep. You know, like the powers of the coming age, just like that. And you know, you could talk about what coming age means for a month. I'm not sure I know what it means. I mean, it's probably heaven, probably. Coming um, things that are going on in Christianity. Yeah, I think I think that it, there's two economies going here. That there is the economy of life in Christ, and there's the economy that put Him on the cross. Uh, and what's happening is that if you join the land of you know the dry land, the unfruitful, that there, there is no gray area. Either among those at the foot of the cross crucifying Christ, or you're willing to take up your cross and follow Christ. So the, they're, they're, in terms of which economy we join, it's a stark contrast. And we're always, I think this again goes back to what Stuart's saying, we're always participating in one of those two economies. That's good. What this makes me think of is somewhere in the Gospels where it's talking about whatever, however you would treat the least of these is how you would treat me. If you're willing to crucify the poor, if you're willing to crucify the different, if you're willing to crucify anybody disadvantaged, anybody different than you, then you're willing to do the same to Christ. However you treat the least of these, however you treat the people 
you know, the economy of, you know, scapegoating, that is how you will treat Christ. Yeah. Yeah. It's Henry Nowen, uh, to try to be with the least, he went and was priest with retarded, with retarded uh, adults and children. I thought he had quite a good example. Forget about denominationalism. He had a good example. <laughs> we'll come, when we do our prayer request tonight, we'll come to talk about Matt and his sister are right now in Uganda, in the slums in Uganda. I, I, I texted Matt, I said, if in, our, in my life I never do anything worthwhile, I helped you do this. You helped put him in the slums of Uganda? <laughs> 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 I put you Help in the out. slums of Uganda. <laughs> Alec, or Mary Jane, read the next one. <laughs> that's prevalent um, with some people about this passage is if if you have fallen away like it says there in Hebrews 6 then you must not have truly been saved. Uh, In order to say that they have to diminish the idea of these these terms that are used here in verse 4. The enlightened, the partaker, tasting, and all of those things. And and they look at those terms as if, oh, they just tasted. They didn't really they didn't really dive in and feast on Jesus. They just tasted. Yeah. Well Jesus just tasted death too, scripture says. So did he just just die a little bit? Uh, no, he. It, it, it's a matter of of partaking, consuming to the full. Uh, and, and, and light is always used in a salvation context. Uh, all these words are, and and so the idea that someone can fall away because they weren't really saved is totally debunked. Well, don't you think there's there a certain church that believes that? Yeah. We don't mention any names. I think they say once saved, always saved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who would say it. I, <laughs> I think <they're> <laughs> <laughs> And I think that if you go with that, you're missing the... In other words, I think that there's a twofold thing here. Put forth effort. You gotta, you gotta put forth effort in this thing. You've got to strive to enter in. You've got to, in other words, it's not a, a magical thing that's happened to you. You have to be a part of the willful effort to be brought to maturity. So there's a kind of warning here, but it's a warning that is, uh, uh, you know, there's a tinge of fear. But I think the idea is, yeah, and, and the idea is to, to go on. Called working out your own salvation. Work out your salvation, yeah, with fear and trembling. Good, yeah. good. Mary Jane, you want to do the uh, next one? Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. 
So again, uh, that he's talking about there is land that is fruitful, that it receives water. Water is, you know, I, I don't think we're stretching it too far. That that's what gives life. It's connected. We, you know, John talks about John Stewart just gave me a sermon on this. That's excellent. Tell them about. Tell them what you do with water and blood. Oh, water and blood give life. Water and blood give life. And water then is representative of life. Uh, and then, uh, Jake, you want to do verse 8? The land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. I mean, that's a bad place to end. The end. That's all, folks. Yeah, you could do the same thing with Jesus when he talks about the vine and the branches. I don't think that Jesus' main point in this, that some branches are not worth anything. You just have to cut them off. They're only worth being thrown in the fire. I don't think that he's necessarily talking about eternal judgment there. And of course, what the writer here is wanting to do is in the next verse that we're not going to do tonight. And that is, even though we speak like this, friends, we are confident of better things. That is that I've said these fearful things, but the goal is to strive on. Alright, any comments, questions? Uh,